The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you are new, we are in a series called Reconstructing Faith. And so uh, we essentially put it out to you guys, the church family, as to what are the big questions that you're asking, what are the big questions maybe even that your friends and family uh, asking. And then in light of that, we've, we've tried to kind of condense that down into six weeks. There's some that we may not get to in this particular series. Um, and each week we're kind of looking at God and something. And so we've looked at God and the Bible. Uh, last week, Shane did a great job of looking at God and science. Uh, today, I get the, the great privilege to, to talk about God and sexuality. And whenever you talk about a, a topic such as sexuality, particularly in today's context, uh, I think there are a couple things that are really, really important to state up front. Number one is that we're not just talking about theoretical issues. We're not talking, uh, we are going to explore theology and what the Bible has to say, but we are talking about deeply personal things. And therefore, we must, as churches, as Christians, always handle with compassion and care things that matter to human people that God loves, that God cares for, that God made and God died for. And so today, wherever you are in your journey of faith, wherever you are in terms of your sexuality, I want to ask that you would try and hear everything that is said today through that lens, that you would know that I care about you, this church cares about you, and more than anything, God cares. And then secondarily, we also want to say that we, we also need to talk about these things with conviction. Um, that is to say that we love God, we trust God, and we do not fear culture. We do not take our cues from culture. We take our cues from, from Scripture. And therefore, in all of our lives, if we are going to be followers of Jesus, we want to seek to understand what is it that He says... And why does he say that? And what is he saying? And what's behind and underneath that? And we want to be hopefully helpful today. That's, that's the goal. And before we get started, I thought I'd throw a bunch of books on the screen for you. These are books I've read over the last three years uh, around the topic of sexuality, transgenderism, um, about bodies, singleness. Um, and so if you want to take a snapshot of that, um, these are probably the best books I've read in the last three years. Uh, there's numerous writers there. For example, Sam Albury has written, I think, three or four of those books. He himself is a same-sex attracted man. And he writes around sexuality. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry, any of you here, any of you ladies love a bit of Jackie Hill Perry? She's a, a spoken word uh, chick. She's written that Gay Girl, Good God book. It's super helpful. Uh, she's come out of the, the lesbian um, context and is now married with children, and so she tells her story and her journey. Um, these books are really, really, really helpful uh, for those of us who are parents raising teens. That that raising teens book there, it's you can read that in less than twenty minutes. It's really, really helpful. Uh, it's super helpful in terms of just thinking through the sexualized culture in which our children uh, are growing up in, and and things and ways that we can approach that. Uh, that are helpful. So just thought I'd throw those up there for you if there's anything there that would be helpful. Um, yeah, I encourage to read 
all of those books. Uh, the only one that's probably the hardest, uh, you probably can't see it, it's the book on the bottom, a third from the right. Uh, it's about this thick. It was essentially a PhD thesis about how we kind of developed our thinking around sexuality and identity. Um, I'm still reading that one. <laughs> it's very, very long and very, very big. Uh, but they're helpful. So, when it comes to sexuality, there are really three approaches that we see in culture. Culture is, in many ways, torn. It doesn't know which way to go when it comes to sexuality. And so there is this one extreme which would say that sexuality is God. That it is everything. That it is to be expressed and received and all things and everything must occur. On the other side, there is this concept that sexuality is gross. That it's nothing, it doesn't matter, it's to be avoided, it's to be rejected. And I believe that the Bible says, no, 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 sexuality is something. It's not everything, it's not nothing, it's something. And it's a gift thing that God actually created and made and gives to us. And therefore, we need to steward it. And it is to be Redeemed. And so what I want to look at today is I want to kind of walk through a sweep of sort of scripture and look at how does the Bible begin by talking about sexuality? Where is that then going to in the new creation? And in between, we will look at the fall and what has gone wrong and then how Jesus comes in with good news to us. And because I'm nervous, I shall pray. And as I pray, you shall pray for me. Amen. All right. Dear Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we do have information, and more than information, we have stories of people in this book that help us to see that you love and care for all people. And God, you are here for all people, and you are offering yourself to all people. And Lord, as we open up this book, I pray today that no matter where we are on this spectrum, no matter where we feel about our sexuality, that you would at least, at the very least, open up our door to say, we want to know more about you. And that we would follow you and trust you and love you. And God, would experience your gracious, merciful, kind hand towards us as you take us and redeem us and restore us towards your good end. And Father, I pray today that our words would be seasoned with salt and would be heard through gracious ears. But Lord, that that would also be clear, that we would honor you and trust you with your good instructions and design. And pray this in your son's wonderful name. And everybody said, amen. So I want to start in Genesis 1. If ever you're going to come up with some type of doctrine, some type of concept of what does God think about anything, you should always go to the beginning and then sort of follow that thread all the way through the Bible. And so I want to start off in Genesis 1 and 2. I want to read sort of these things through. I haven't sort of kept everything in here, but I've kind of taken the main things that speak to us. And then I want to sort of flesh out some ideas that the Bible is seeking to develop from Genesis and thread through the entire Bible. And so Genesis 1.26 says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2 then kind of goes a little bit closer. Chapter 1, the way to think of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1 is very, very wide lens. It's this grand epic narrative. That's where all the CGI is occurring. And then Genesis 2 kind of goes, okay, well, let's go back, but then let's go a narrower lens. And so now it starts speaking of the particulars of this man and this woman. It says, then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Then the Lord God said that it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman. And he brought it to the man, and the man said, it really should say the man's son, because this is a song. This is the first song in the whole of the Bible. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is the first place in the whole of the Bible where we see male-female union in sexuality. So I want to give you just a few things I want to sort of unpack it that I think helps frame the Christian worldview of how we should see sexuality. Firstly, God creates. That is, the existence and the reality in which we have is because of God. He made it, He purposed it, He designed it. There is no such thing as an accidental person. There can be accidental parents but there is no such thing as an accidental child. God is intending, God is purposing, God is ordering, and God is creating goodness all the way through. And this includes our maleness, this includes our femaleness, this includes our sexuality, this includes our bodies. And it says that God created humanity. And this is to say that there is this distinction, there is this creator-creation distinction. God creates all things. The creatures do not create themselves. Therefore, they do not design themselves and purpose themselves. That is something that has come from God. And if God exists and God creates, this is really, really important, I think, to the Christian worldview, then identity is not something personally discovered. Identity is something given by God. Again, this is somewhere where I think our culture is somewhat torn, trying to understand who we are, how we are. And so there are, there are kind of extremes of the spectrum, I think, that our culture is kind of saying, well, we're not sure which one we are, this again will come on the screen, but essentially the, the question that we are asking is, who are we? What is the real me? Who am I? And on one side, there is the, the immaterialists. That is to say, 
that the real me is the me on the inside. That my body, physiologically and biologically, has nothing to actually say of who I am. And then you have the materialists on the other side who say, no, the body is actually everything to who I am. And both of these extremes essentially do something similar. They seek to shape and mold the body in order to find or determine who they are. So with the immaterialists, think of movies like Avatar, uh, movies like Ready Player One. Um, If you are up to date with anything going on right now with Facebook, you will know that it's no longer going to be called Facebook. It's going to be changed to Meta. In other words, we are moving towards a realm of immateriality, where relationships will no longer be physiologically primarily, they're going to be in another world. Some of us hear that and we freak out. (laughs) But this is where our culture is going. Hudson is freaking out right over there right now. He's like, wow. But the Bible actually speaks to both. The Bible speaks to the immaterialist to say um, that that those who who do not see their body as who they are is to say, no, listen, your body is not incidental. Your body is not an accident. Your body is intentionally given to you by God. Your body cannot be separated from who you are because to be human is to be material and immaterial. It is both. It is not an extreme of one or the other. And then to the materialist, the Bible wants to say, listen, you don't have to place all of your identity onto your body. That your body is who you are, but it is not the totality of who you are. This is why the Bible often speaks about the inside of the person. God cares about the material you, your body, your physical flesh matters. In the Christian worldview, when we die, it is not an abdication of the physiological world. It is that that body will die away with and we will get a new one. To be human is to be material and is to be immaterial. Your body is not nothing, but it is also not everything. It is intrinsic to who you are, but it is not the totality of who you are. And so this immaterialist view obviously has roll-on effects as to how now we think about sexuality. Because if my body means nothing and isn't the real me, then why does it matter who I sleep with? Because it's just sex. And the Bible wants to say, sex is not just physiological. What you do with your body matters to your soul and to that immaterial part of you. And the immaterial part of you is connected to the material part of you. Why does it matter who I sleep with if it's just a physical thing? And the Bible wants to say, no, sexuality is more than that. It is deeper than that. C.S. Lewis, speaking on the body, says this. He says, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter 
is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. When God created us and gives us a body and gives us a gender in maleness and femaleness, God is saying that that is a part of who you are and it matters. And so the distinction is made of male and femaleness. This is this complementary yet distinct. This is why Adam gets excited when he sees Eve, because he realizes Eve is different to him, but she is also like him. All the way through the creation narrative, it starts with there is a distinction between there's sameness and distinction. So there's heaven and earth. There is night and day. There is sun and moon. And all the way through, it's building up to this, this kind of climactic, there is differences and sameness and differences and sameness. And the last distinction made in the creation narrative, it finishes with, and then there is male and female. Sameness, but distinction. And so we're supposed to see that there is this heaven and earth and there is this male and there is this female. And as the story unfolds, it is supposed to be developing this union between this man and this woman. And that man and woman distinction is supposed to somehow point us back to the heaven and earth distinction. It is important, I think, for us at this point, to say that there are people in this room whose experiences with gender will be unlike many of us. That, that the term gender dysphoria is not something that Christianity and the church just say does not exist, but actually that is very real. And there are people in our society, friends, people even in this church, who may be struggling with how they feel about their body and what that is saying to them. And again, I pray that you would hear the words of God today, that God loves you, that God is for you, that you are not subhuman or unhuman because of your wrestle and struggle with your gender ideology. And I pray that this church would be a place that you can come and be loved and cared for and extended grace. But we must say that this is what the Bible teaches. And it goes on to tell us that they are created male and female in his image. This is to say that the relationship between the man and the woman is pointing to something bigger, something more. This, therefore the man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, shall become one flesh. When we read that, we don't pick up in the Hebrew the word echad, a very word which is used all throughout the Bible to describe God, Father, Son, Spirit, echad. This humanity thing that we are isn't even just about us. It's pointing to something bigger, something better. And so, yes, in this context and throughout the Bible, the Bible holds to this sexual ethic to be around this union between one man, one woman in this covenanted marriage. That is why it says that they are here 
naked and unashamed. That is the, the safe place where there is vulnerability and there is expression. And all through the Bible, this gets repeated. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then he goes on and he says, this mystery is profound. So he's been talking about husbands and wives and how they're supposed to relate. And then he says, but I'm saying this because actually that union, that male-female husband-wife union, is actually pointing to heaven and earth. Christ and the church. Jesus says the same thing. In the book of Matthew 19, he's being asked questions around divorce. And these uh, Pharisees, as they always do, are trying to trip him up and try and catch him out so that he can be arrested. And Jesus, in response to their question about whether a man can uh, divorce his wife and for what reasons, Jesus says this. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is an allusion back to the beginning of Genesis 1. And then he says, father and mother hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He then quotes the same thing again in Genesis 2. So that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Why does God want us to be joined and then not separated? Because that is, the, that is the covenant that heaven and earth, Christ and God, is making to the church. That we would become united and never be separated from him. And so they ask a question about divorce, and Jesus says, you won't understand divorce unless you understand marriage. They, then he says, and then you won't understand marriage unless you understand this thing of gender. This male-female thing leads to this marriage thing, which leads to this one flesh thing, and somehow all of it is pointing to a God thing. How is God portrayed all throughout the Old Testament? We, we are really clear that God constantly portrays himself as a king. But if you read the Old Testament, God is also constantly portraying himself as a husband to a wife. That he is a groom. So Jesus in the Gospels enters the story and he says, here I am, the groom, the husband, the one who has come to earth. Heaven has left and come to be with earth. God has come to be with his people. And then at the end of the picture, the very last picture, is this marriage feast, this, this wedding celebration where the husband, the groom of heaven, encounters and is joined again with the bride of earth, his people of God. Now this is really important because when we get to a sexual ethic, I think Christians and churches wrongly peer it as being a heterosexual conversation versus a homosexual conversation. And Jesus goes, it's, it's, you've missed it. The church and the Christian, the Christian faith is not trying to heterosexualize people. That's not the goal. The goal is to point people to Jesus, to God. That's the goal. And so you would have seen uh, Christopher, uh, I think he's, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but uh, I think it's Yuong. 
he had there up on the screen. It was called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. What he says is we need to come up with a different kind of version of language around sexuality. So he goes, how about we don't talk about homosexuality and heterosexuality as if these are these sort of categories. What if we just go, what does the Bible say about sexuality? And he interestingly points out that there are only six verses in the whole of the Bible that mention homosexuality explicitly. But then it speaks 32 times about adultery. And it speaks 55 times using the term sexual immorality or porneia. Meaning when God is talking about sexuality, he's talking to everybody about our ethic and our bodies and our gender and our sexuality and how this is to be expressed. And so in his book, he says this, he says, holy sexuality consists of two paths. There is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. But chastity is more than simply abstination from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. And faithfulness is more than merely maintaining commitment. Uh, Merely uh, maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit success. It conveys covenantal commitment. Both of these embody the only correct biblical sexual ethic and unambiguously articulate the exact expressions of sexual behavior that God blesses. From Genesis to Revelation, in the entirety of the biblical witness, only two paths align with God's standard for sexual expression. If you're single, be sexually abstinent while fleeing lustful desires, and if you're married, be sexually and emotionally faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex while also fleeing lustful desires. This is a same-sex attracted man. Highly recommend his book. It's very, very, his story is fascinating. His parents were Christians who he later came out as gay, and so they do now a ministry together where they are actually helping parents on how to love and care for those who may not hold to the biblical sexual ethic. His parents seem like amazing people, the way they have loved and cared for him. He was incarcerated for a long period of time in his life, and so he has this incredible story. But one of the things that he is pointing out here, and this is really important for those of you who are young and not yet married, you think that getting married is going to fix the sexual problem. I've been married for nearly 20 years. It has not fixed the problem. There is still stuff in here for me that is broken. I am still having to deny myself and resist all the time. I had a sexual past. And God is continuing to redeem it, but it still has lingering effects on me. I had a porn addiction. And whilst that is no longer a practicing thing in my life, it still has lingering effects on my mind. The other thing I love about this is it's reminding us all throughout the gospel that sex is a foretaste of something greater. It is a shadow of a true and better reality. That sexuality is pointing us of what it's like to know God and be known by God. Therefore, sexuality is not nothing. It matters. But it's also not everything. Meaning... 
that if you are single, you are not somehow subhuman because you are not expressing your sexuality. Paul, the apostle, writes to the church in Corinth and actually says to them, I, I'm, I'm, he, he, he words it in such a way where he says, I'm not saying this as, as, as if it's a command, but I actually think most of you should remain single. That's a crazy statement. You wouldn't think that's in the Bible. Paul chooses to remain single his whole life, yet we celebrate him as one of the great followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself puts on flesh, becomes a man, and denies and resists all sorts and forms of temptations and does not encounter in any sexual encounter and overcomes and beats the sexual temptation on our behalf. And we would not say that Paul is less than, that Jesus is less than. And so this is not something that has to be expressed in order for you to be human and a follower of Jesus. So our sexual desires, these longings that we have for intimacy are real and true, but they are supposed to be pointing us to something greater. If you are in the room and you have desires, that means you're human, okay? That desire in and of itself is supposed to point you to something beyond it. That is, that that desire that you have for intimacy is actually something spiritual inside of you, which is primarily supposed to be intimacy with the Lord, with Jesus. And somehow he has placed this thing in our hearts and it is real and it is deep. But it is not the real thing. That is why when we get to heaven, there is no more marriage. There is no more sexuality because it's just the foretaste of something to come. And as a culture which is lifting up sexuality to be everything, we miss the whole point that we are supposed to, in light of it, be saying, man, this is the love of God. So as you follow the Christian story, we see that this is where it is going, but we know that we fall. That sin enters the story and it breaks things. It distorts Things and what is supposed to be a good gift and to be stewarded in a way which is mutually edifying and God glorifying becomes something else. So now we live in a culture where sexuality is used to hurt people and damage people. And our culture, in many ways, it's, it's not getting any better. I don't know if you follow Jordan Peterson and some of these other people. There's this big secular uprising now against pornography to say, hey, we're now kind of 20, 30 years into this experiment, and it's starting to destroy generations. And this is not Christians just saying there's something damaging about this thing called pornography. It is non-Christians going, we are getting like sexually addicted people who have never been with a real person. Have you heard of the cuddle hubs that are being developed throughout Japan and America? This is for people 
who just need to feel human touch. So literally on your lunch break, you can go to these cuddle hubs and someone will be there and just give you a hug. Do you know why? Because we've got millions and millions of people who are involved in pornographic, sexualized stuff and they have no intimacy with another human being. And so now we are creating spaces where they need to just be loved. And Jesus offers us a place where we can feel loved and cared for. And so in this story, the fall happens and our relationship to God is broken. Paul says it this way in Romans 1, For all they knew, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were dark. And claiming to be wise, they became fool. And they exchanged the glory of God, uh, the immortal God, for images. This is the idea that now we are replacing the creation. We are going to things to say who we are and find our identity. And we are going to those things to worship. And therefore it says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is the idea that God has created God who's given us our identity and now it's shifted and now we're going to everything else. Our relationship with one another gets broken and now instead of sexuality being something that is beautiful and fruitful and leads to the blessing of all of God's creatures, it is hurting people and wounding people and it affects our relationship to ourselves. How we feel, how we think, how we act becomes broken. And it's important to say, all of us are broken. Every one of us in this room have distortions in us. It's why we cannot just say that this is something for the LGBTQ plus community and not for the Christian who's a heterosexual and married. It's like, it is all of us. All of us are broken. There is this section, uh, again in Mark 7, where Jesus is encountering um, these disciples and these Pharisees, and they see, they see sin as something that is out there, and Jesus says to them, hey, listen, sin is not just something out there with those people. Sin is something that's in here. And he says in Mark 7, he says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, witness." Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Do you know if you read the New Testament, sexual sins are always put in with so many other sins. I'm still yet to see someone who makes a big plaque and walks around and goes, God hates greedies. God hates gossipers. God hates slanderers. But for some reason, some Christians and some churches have felt necessary to pick out just one group and just put it on a sign and says, God hates them. And I want to say, have you read your Bible? God loves all of us, and we are all broken, and we all have things in our lives that are not as they should be. And our culture says, look deep within yourself, and you will find yourself. And Jesus says, don't look within yourself to find yourself. Don't look within to find the solution to the angst. 
If you go in, that is where the angst is. Go back to the creator God. Who does he say that you are? How does he feel about you? Because your identity is something that is given to us. I have been married 20 years. Sexual history before I met my wife. As I said, porn addiction before I met my wife. God has had to do a lot of healing. God has had to do a lot of renewing of a mind. And as the Bible tells me and has taught me for my own self, my own sexuality, that there are things here that I need to kind of come in line with God. For many, many, many years, I felt there was no hope for me. Honestly, I felt like I'd never be able to get away from a screen. Some of us, we feel like that in different ways. But here is the good news. Jesus comes. And he comes for all of us. And he comes and he puts on us. Do, do you realize the magnitude of that? Heaven comes to earth. Jesus, who is not physical, becomes human. Till this day, he is still wearing his flesh. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. And he will forever live in a human body. Jesus comes. So yes, gender, the body, sexuality in the Bible is going somewhere and sin interrupts it. But Jesus comes. And he comes and he redeems his original design and purpose for our lives, including our bodies, including our gender, including our sexuality that we would in some way somehow reflect the Christ church, the heaven-earth relationship. There's this passage in Corinthians. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of the earth. If you pick up on what he's doing there, he's saying no one will inherit the kingdom in and of themselves. And then he says some of the great words, as such were some of you. But that's not who you are anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Now, what I'm not saying here is that if you feel an orientation that is same-sex attracted or even bisexual or some sense of gender dysphoria, that somehow becoming a Christian will mean that that will just all go. Most of the authors of those books are Christian people who are still same-sex attracted. Even some of them who are married and now have children are saying their temptation is still towards the same sex, not the other way around. There is still this internal wrestle. What I am saying is, is that wrestle is not alone. 
that Jesus is with you, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus wants to journey with you, and Jesus wants to show you something greater and something bigger, so that you do not live your life in shame. You do not live your life without hope. My friend, I won't say his name, same-sex attracted Christian guy. Uh, we meet up just a couple of times a year. Uh, I was having a chat with him earlier this year. And I love to just ask him questions. Uh, his struggle is different to my struggle. And I remember asking him, I'm like, so what does it feel like for you that you don't have any outlet? You know, because it's one thing for me to say that I'm, I'm trying not to do pornography or I'm trying not to have thoughts in my mind about other women, but yet I still, I still am married and I still have an expression that I'm able to, to participate in, but you have nothing. Like, tell me about that. And I remember him, like, he's very frank. But he said to me, he said, Jesus has said that we all must deny ourselves. And carry our cross. So you must do it. And I must do it. Your carrying of your cross is different to mine. But we are all carrying the cross. We are all denying ourselves something all the time. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Is to say, Jesus, you are the creator God. You are telling me who I am and how you want me to live. Because you are good and you know what leads to human flourishing. And that is your desire. So I'm going to trust you. But then he went on and he said, do you remember what it says after that? And I was like, no, I don't remember after that. He's like, the next line of that is super important. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after him, uh, me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I remember that part. I forgot this part. He said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he said to me, He said, I do not feel like I am repressing something. I feel like I am gaining something because I continue to gain Jesus. And I trust him and I follow him and ultimately I get him. And it hit me. Here is the same sex attracted guy who gets more of Jesus than a heterosexual guy that's married. I was like, man, you're walking with Jesus in a way that I'm not. Teach me how to follow Jesus like you because you seem to know something about Jesus that I'm just missing. His point was this, when you read the Bible, it will offend you. Because God is speaking to broken human beings. But also, if you read the Bible rightly, it will bring you life. Because in it is the God-man who became flesh and put on a body for you. Who came to redeem and restore all things back to himself, that Jesus loves you more than you do yourself, that Jesus knows you better than you do yourself, that Jesus' desire for your happiness is even stronger than your own. So he said to me, I trust the one who went to a cross and did all of that for me and then rose again to give me life. And if that's true, he's the one that I trust with my sexuality. He's the one who I trust with my body. And if his uh, 
death and resurrection on the cross is true. And it's also true that sexuality is not everything to me. And I will give it to Jesus. And so I want to finish as the band come up by saying, I don't know where you are in this room. In a room this size, we have people that are married and your sexuality is a mess. Jesus died for you and Jesus rose to give you life. In a room this size, we have people that are not yet married and your sexuality is a mess. God loves you. God is for you. He died for you to give you life. We have people in this room who are wrestling with gender dysphoria and how I feel on the inside seems different to how I look on the outside. God loves you. God is for you. And he has come to give you life. We have people that are same-sex attracted. And maybe you haven't told anyone yet, but that's how you're feeling. I pray and hope that this will be a church where you feel the love and grace of God that you could actually come out and say, hey, this is, this is how I'm feeling. I don't know how to talk about it. In church, that we'd be a church that would say, hey, lean in. Let us love you and serve you. Let us point you to Christ. There are people in this room and you're never going to get married. You're never going to express your sexuality. And the Bible would say Jesus is enough because it's just a foretaste. It's not the thing. It's not everything. And you won't ultimately miss out because you will get to heaven and you will be with Christ. Sexuality is important to God. Sexuality is important to our church. We want to be a church that is gracious, compassionate, and caring. And one that points to Jesus. Amen. How about we stand and we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.